You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 98, Eagles East. Thanks for joining me. As always, before we get started, I'd like to thank our Patreon supporters. Without your help, this show would not be possible. As you know, we've been doing special bonus content on Patreon for the last six months, The Dispatches. The last installment included topics like military medicine, arms manufacturing, and a little cheap physical comedy from the memoirs of Captain Elzear Blas. And of course, subscribers also get access to ad-free versions of the regular episodes. If any of that sounds appealing to you, visit patreon.com slash ageofnapoleon. Anyway, we left off last time in late 1806. Napoleon was in Berlin, the capital of Prussia, which had recently been occupied by French troops after the dazzling victories of the Jena-Auerstedt campaign. While the men of the Grande Armée enjoyed a pleasant interlude from the war, the economic struggle between France and Britain had escalated to unprecedented new lows. Despite the almost unbelievable success enjoyed by France's armies over the last year, the war showed no signs of stopping. While the men of the Grande Armée rested, drank beer, and romanced to the women of Berlin, The Russians were massing fresh armies in the east, and the remains of the Prussian army were reorganizing themselves to fight again. This interlude in Berlin would prove painfully short. Early December would see the first anniversary of the Battle of Austerlitz. In the aftermath of that great victory, Napoleon had released a proclamation that included the phrase, Peace cannot be far off. But despite a year of furious campaigning, peace seemed as elusive as ever. This constant state of war was beginning to have an impact back in France. The Grande Armée still had yet to suffer a single major defeat in the field. But even in victory, the casualties and attrition from a year of fighting added up. And as we've discussed in past episodes, maintaining and supplying this large force in the field was astronomically expensive. The previous winter, war spending had brought the French economy to the brink of disaster. The country may have come within days of a major financial crash before the government stepped in. The intensified British blockade was having an effect as well, particularly in the ports of northern and western France and in places that produced goods for export. Police Minister Joseph Fouché reported that France was eager for peace. As of yet, it seems the people were not blaming Napoleon himself for the war, but this turn in public opinion was something he had to worry about. Around this same time, a delegation of French senators arrived in Berlin. Officially, they had come to the Prussian capital to offer Napoleon the official congratulations of the French government for his victory over Prussia. However, their true mission was to warn the emperor that public opinion was crying out for peace and to ask him to find a diplomatic solution to the conflict. This is a bit strange when you think about it, Napoleon receiving a delegation from the government of his own country in a foreign palace. With almost the entire continent under his thumb, it was almost like the emperor of the French had outgrown France. 
Napoleon was either informed of the delegation's ulterior motives in advance or saw through them immediately. He gave the senators a cold reception and bluntly informed them that he would not negotiate a peace unless the Russians were prepared to switch sides and turn on their British allies. Bonaparte was thinking about the economic war. He knew the continental system could not work as long as Russia remained open to British trade. It would have been obvious to any keen observer of European diplomacy that the Russians would be unwilling to make such a dramatic change unless they were forced into it by French battlefield victories. So, from Napoleon's perspective, the war had to continue. A peace treaty negotiated under the current conditions could only lead to one outcome. France and her allies strangled into submission by British economic power. In fact, the emperor was finalizing plans to expand his forces. Raising new regiments was tricky. They would have to be trained extensively and gain experience in the field before they could reach the same level as his veteran units. So, instead, every unit of the French army would be expanded. The fresh new recruits would mix with the old veterans and learn from example. This process was called amalgamation, and it might sound a bit dicey, but it had worked well for the French military since the days of the Revolution. However, you have to wonder just how much amalgamation the Grande Armée could take before the flood of new recruits began to degrade the performance of the army. By this point in our story, some new recruits were only trained for a few weeks. There were still plenty of seasoned veterans in Napoleon's ranks to teach them the ropes, but how long could this process continue before that was no longer the case? There was also the question of how many of its young men France could afford to put into uniform. The emperor's forces were already nearing half a million strong, and now he was calling even more men to the colors. To realize this planned expansion of the military, the men who were slated to be conscripted in 1807 would be called up early. Not a good sign. Napoleon also leaned on his brother Louis to raise more Dutch troops from his Kingdom of Holland, and finally convinced Spain to send a contingent of troops east. As you might remember from past episodes, Spain and France were allies, but the Spanish were wary of Napoleon and had little enthusiasm for this war. Until now, they had been reluctant to involve their ground forces. So, who would be paying for all these fresh troops? As we've seen in past episodes, the French financial system was already hard-pressed. As always, Napoleon would make his enemies foot the bill. The Berlin Decrees, which had recently established the continental system, led to a huge windfall for the French government. All over French-controlled Europe, the authorities seized British merchandise and auctioned it off to the highest bidder. Napoleon also imposed massive indemnities on the newly conquered territories of northern and eastern Germany. A whopping 560 million francs were squeezed out of the Germans. To put that in perspective, after their defeat at Austerlitz the previous year, the Habsburgs had been forced to pay just 40 million. We've already talked a lot about the challenges Napoleon faced as he tried to win hearts and minds in Germany, but I don't think any of the obstacles we discussed loom larger than that number. Northern and Eastern Germany were paying dearly for the defeat of the Prussian army. 
But before any of these plans could go into effect, the Grande Armée would be headed back out on campaign. Around this same time, the Emperor began receiving reports that those Russian armies that had been massing in the western parts of their empire were finally on the move into the former Polish Commonwealth. Napoleon had to respond. It was a matter of simple geography. With western and central Prussia now occupied, the front lines between the French and coalition forces had shrunk to a relatively narrow strip of land, about 240 kilometers or 150 miles wide. The gap between the Baltic Sea and the border with the Habsburg province of Galicia. This was mostly rough country. Outside the great cities of Warsaw and Posen, it was relatively sparsely populated. The roads were poor. It was crisscrossed by rivers, including the mighty Vistula. Much of it was covered in dense, primeval forests and thick swamps. Despite the huge, obvious hazards of campaigning in this type of terrain in this part of the world during winter, Napoleon felt he could not afford to let the Prussians and the Russians ensconce themselves in this narrow, highly defensible strip of land. If his enemies had all winter to occupy and fortify this area, it might prove impossible to dislodge them come spring. And so, the men of the Grande Armée would have to pry themselves away from the taverns and parties of Berlin. The army was marching east. As they prepared to push deeper into Poland, Napoleon and his men would be leaving their home turf. Obviously, by now, they were very far from France. The distance between Paris and Warsaw, where Napoleon hoped to cross the Vistula and set up a base of operations, is over 1,300 kilometers, or roughly 850 miles. But we're talking about more than just distance here. We've discussed a lot of campaigns fought by the French since the outbreak of the Wars of the Revolution back in 1792, but most of them have been concentrated in a relatively small area. Eastern France, the Low Countries, Germany, Austria, Northern Italy, and one brief foray into Central Europe. The conditions of these places had shaped the organization, doctrine, and operations of the French armies, and the modus operandi of the French officers and soldiers. Generally speaking, the places the Grande Armée was used to fighting had fertile farmland, relatively mild weather, good roads and infrastructure, and lots of people, both in cities and towns, and in the countryside. This was good country for early 19th century armies. It lent itself to rapid movements of large bodies of men. It was easy to live off the land, and failing that, there were plenty of prosperous locals around to shake down for food, cash, and supplies. Even as far east as Bohemia, the social structures encountered by French soldiers were not too different from the ones they had left behind in France. The language, and in some cases the dominant religion, might be different. But in places that share similar economic, social, and political systems, there are always commonalities. There is one prominent exception, which we've discussed in detail on the show, Egypt. The Army of the Orient had to deal with a radically different environment, and a vast cultural divide separating them from the Egyptians they hoped to rule. As you might recall, these differences had created massive problems nearly leading the army to disaster on several occasions, and ultimately playing a large role in the failure of the expedition. 
Obviously, central Poland is quite a bit more similar to Western Europe than the deserts of Egypt. However, as the Grande Armée pushed east, they would be leaving behind familiar ground for a land in which they were untested. To take one example, in previous campaigns, Napoleon often had his choice of which roads to use as he maneuvered his corps. That would not be possible in the coming struggle, because there was not a single paved road between Posen and Warsaw. These were two major cities. This would have been unthinkable in France, Italy, or Germany. But this was the East, and paved roads were a rare luxury. The land here was poorer. There were fewer people. Cities and towns were smaller, fewer, and more isolated from one another. The bourgeoisie was very small. Generally speaking, this was a land of peasants and lords, with few in between. Bad news for the French, who often relied on the support, or at least ambivalence, of the local middle classes to ease their conquests. The geography itself was difficult as well. Lots of rivers, lakes, swamps, and thick forests. And of course, this would be magnified by the winter climate. As of yet, the Grande Armée had been very lucky with weather. October and November 1806 had been mild and mostly dry. But with each passing day, and each step to the east, the chances of that luck holding grew smaller and smaller. This would be a new environment for both Napoleon and his men. Not only would they have to contend with the Russians, but also with the challenges of adapting their winning system to a very different region of the world. The men of the Grande Armée did not welcome this challenge. As soon as word got out that they would be marching east, morale within the French army plummeted. They were exhausted after a year of hard fighting, and had become attached to their comfortable existence in Berlin. Many had simply assumed they would be passing the winter in eastern Germany. As you might recall from past episodes, European armies of the past had rarely fought during this time of the year. Now, not only would they be campaigning in the winter, they were headed for a region known for bad weather, rough terrain, and lack of comfortable lodging. For most of them, this would be the second Christmas in a row away from home and family. The men of the Grande Armée were a tough group and were accustomed to hardship, but most of them would be entering the coming campaign with a sense of dread and resignation. Fortunately for the French soldiers, only about 80,000 of them would be headed east. Tens of thousands needed to stay behind to maintain order in Germany and to keep an eye on the Habsburgs, who had already launched an ambitious program of rearmament and military reform and were growing stronger every day. Napoleon was unsure of the positions and intentions of the Russians, and so the Grande Armée would move cautiously in a broad front with a heavy screen of cavalry under Marshal Murat advancing ahead of the infantry columns. Along with Murat's cavalry corps, Bonaparte had to send out surveyors ahead of the army. They were literally entering unknown territory. There were no good maps of this region. For the first time since Egypt, Napoleon was flying blind. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. 
brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. His Russian opponents were led by Field Marshal Count Mikhail Kamensky. Just like in the old days, Napoleon would be facing off against an aging veteran general, well past his prime. Kamensky was 69, and the years had not been kind to him. He was notorious for his quick temper and obstinate attitude. It had been 15 years since he had last commanded troops in the field. However, he had also been the right-hand man of the recently deceased Marshal Alexander Suvorov, perhaps the greatest soldier in Russian history. This type of elderly throwback to the 18th century had never fared well against Napoleon, but perhaps we can't blame the Russians for trying to recapture some of the Suvorov magic. Kamensky himself was not confident his emperor had made the right choice. Shortly after arriving at the front, Kamensky wrote a letter back to the court in St. Petersburg. Quote, I am too old for the army. My sight is growing so dim that I can no longer see the name of a single town on the map. My eyes hurt and my head aches. I can hardly sit on a horse. I venture to beg you to find a replacement for me so I can turn over command to him. I sign without knowing what I sign. End quote. The Russian forces under Kamensky were divided into two armies, one under General Friedrich Wilhelm von Buxhuvden and the other under General Count Levin August von Benigsen. The officer corps of the Russian army was very uneven. As we've seen in past episodes, they had some capable commanders, men who had proven themselves in years of near-constant warfare on Russia's eastern and southern borders. However, Russia was a country with a big army and a small recruiting pool for officers, and a country with a strict aristocratic hierarchy. With so many officer positions to fill, and so few qualified candidates to fill them, this practically guaranteed there were also a lot of mediocre or even downright incompetent officers. Generals Benigsen and Buxhuvden definitely fell in the mediocre category. Benigsen was well known within the Russian army but not for any military achievement. He had been among the gang of disgruntled officers who had brutally assassinated Emperor Paul I six years earlier. There was an intense personal hatred between Benigsen and Buxhuvden. With their overall commander past his prime and unsuited to lead, the fate of the Russian armies might depend on the ability of these two rivals to cooperate. You may have noticed that those are both German names. Buxhuvden was a so-called Baltic German. In much of the modern-day Baltic states, the aristocracy was ethnically German during this period. Many of these families had strong military traditions, in some cases dating back to the famous Teutonic Knights of the Middle Ages. After this region came under Russian domination, the Baltic German aristocracy quickly became the single most important recruiting ground for the officer corps of the Imperial Russian Army. In fact, there were so many Russian officers drawn from this small pool of families that you see the same surnames over and over again. 
Later historians have been forced to assign numbers to many of Russia's Baltic German generals, just to keep them all straight. Bennigsen actually came from Germany itself. He was one of many foreigners who had gone east to seek their fortunes in the Imperial Russian Army. As I mentioned, there was a deficit of capable officer candidates among the Russian aristocracy, and so they recruited abroad to fill the gap. This was also a conduit for Western military doctrines and methods to enter the Russian military. Some of these men had served in armies that were much closer to the cutting edge of modern military theory. There were also drawbacks to this system. Some of these officers came to Russia because they weren't good enough to hack it in their native country's military. Some were actually villainous characters, fleeing disciplinary problems, gambling debts, or even criminal charges. During their service in Russia, these foreigners sometimes formed cliques among themselves, and there were incidents of friction between foreign and Russian-born officers. But all in all, this recruitment of foreign officers was an important lifeline for an army in desperate need of capable leadership. We shouldn't dwell too much on the problems of the Russian officer corps. There were some brilliant commanders among the junior generals marching east, under Bennigsen and Buxhuvden. Prince Bagration, who we've discussed in several past episodes, led a division. The Cossacks were commanded by the very capable Count Matvey Platov. Platov was not only a military leader, but the political chief of the entire Cossack community. He was practically worshipped by his men. Another division was led by General Michael Andreas Barclay de Tolly, who, despite his Scottish name, was also a member of the Baltic German nobility. We will have a lot more to say about Barclay in future episodes. The Russians would be joined by what was left of the Prussian army. A single division of around 15,000 infantry was all that remained of the roughly 200,000 who had been mobilized earlier in the year. Just to add to the misleading names, the Prussians were led by a general of Huguenot ancestry with a French surname, Anton Wilhelm von Lestock. Despite the poor leadership at the top and all the astounding French victories of the preceding year, the Russians were reasonably confident. Remember, unlike basically every other army in Europe, the Russians actually had fared relatively well in their recent encounters with the French army. In 1799, Marshal Suvorov had led a Russian army in a triumphant campaign through northern Italy, almost a mirror image of Napoleon's astonishing march through the region three years earlier, during the First Italian Campaign. Suvorov had ultimately been outmaneuvered by Andrei Masséna, but had not suffered a single battlefield defeat. As you may remember from our episode on the Battle of Austerlitz, the Russian troops had actually performed relatively well that day. The battle was lost by the poor planning and bad strategy of the top brass, not by the soldiers or field officers. And of course, the Russians had not been alone at Austerlitz. Generally speaking, if there was even a single Austrian soldier on the field alongside the Russians at a coalition defeat, you can be sure the Russians blamed their allies for the loss. Now, there would be no Habsburgs to blame if things went wrong. Napoleon left Berlin in the wee hours of November 25th, arriving in the formerly Polish city of Posen on the 27th, where he set up his headquarters. The local population was ecstatic. The whole town was decorated with lanterns, flags, and signs reading, quote, 
to the restorer of the Polish nation, end quote. Perhaps they were hoping to make a suggestion there. Napoleon still had not made any formal announcement of a restored Polish state. That said, he had acknowledged a free Poland as a possibility, and for most Poles, that was cause for celebration. One of his aides would later recall, quote, The establishment of Napoleon's headquarters, which I supervised, made some sensation in Posen. Attracted as I was by the lively and brilliant intellect and patriotic and chivalrous enthusiasm of the nobility of this country, the demonstrative welcome of these ardent and open-hearted souls won me over completely. I joined some of their gatherings, where, in spite of the seriousness and reserve which was habitual to all those around Napoleon, I shared in their delight, and sympathized with the hopes of that brave and charming nation, which was worthy of a better fate. End quote. While the senior officers were charmed by the friendly Polish nobility, morale among the men remained low. Still, the Grande Armée pressed on. They had to cross at least some of these rivers before the weather made it impossible. The Russians were not far away. Their base of operations was only about 300 kilometers or 186 miles east of Posen, at Praga, just outside Warsaw, where the Russian army had carried out an infamous massacre back in 1794. The Russians had not anticipated an offensive like this so soon and decided to fall back to better defensive positions, rather than wait for Napoleon. Troops from Murat's Cavalry Corps entered Warsaw unopposed on November 28th. Just like in Posen, the mostly Polish residents of the city gave them a rapturous reception. They dragged their dining room tables out into the streets to hold impromptu banquets with Murat's troopers. A Polish noblewoman who witnessed the scene would later recall, quote, in the morning, the arrival of a French regiment was announced. How shall I describe the enthusiasm with which it was received? To understand such emotions properly, one must have lost everything, and believe in the possibility of hoping for everything, like ourselves. This handful of warriors, when they set foot on our soil, seemed to us a guarantee of the independence we were expecting at the hands of the great man whom nothing could resist. End quote. As was his habit, Marshal Murat cut a flamboyant figure, bordering on the ridiculous. He wore an outfit made specially for this campaign, a long, green, fur-trimmed coat decorated in Polish fashion with gold flourishes, and a fur-trimmed winter hat in bright red topped with a gigantic white plume. He looked more like some kind of fantasy eastern warlord from a romantic painting than a French officer. His fellow marshals, and even Napoleon, sometimes laughed at Murat's outlandish clothing, but apparently he made quite an impression on the people of Warsaw. All the notables of the city turned out to greet Murat, including Prince Józef Poniatowski, a senior nobleman who had led Polish troops in the last desperate campaigns to save the country from being swallowed up by the Eastern Great Powers. Poniatowski had also served in the old Polish parliament, the same, and was a nephew of the last king of Poland. Few people in the entire country commanded more respect than the 43-year-old prince. In honor of the liberation of the city, Poniatowski presented Murat with a gift a saber that had once belonged to Stephen Batory, 
a great warrior who had reigned as King of Poland in the late 16th century, during the Commonwealth's Golden Age. Podyatovsky explained, quote, Property of the last kings of Poland, this saber once served Stephen Batory, one of our most valiant sovereigns, and bore witness to our most brilliant victories. Placed in the hands of your imperial highness, it will resume, after centuries, the glorious road that it has already traveled, and will, perhaps, fight again for the fatherland. End quote. Murat was a powerful man, not only a marshal of France, but a close friend and brother-in-law of Napoleon himself, and recently named Grand Duke of Berg. The Poles knew they would need to make friends and allies of such people if they hoped to regain their country. This gift of King Stephen's saber had its intended effect, and then some. Murat was deeply moved, and began to dream that he himself might become king of a restored Poland. This was a very grand ambition for the son of an innkeeper, but who could say, all of Europe was in flux. This was a time when even men of humble origins really could dream of ruling over great empires. Unfortunately for the men of the Grande Armée, this warm reception in Warsaw would be nothing more than a brief respite from the rigors of a winter campaign in Eastern Europe. In fact, things were about to get much worse. As they secured Warsaw, the French discovered that the Russians had destroyed all of the city's grain mills. Capturing this great city would do little to alleviate the army's supply problems. Once they crossed the Vistula, they were entering territory that had just been occupied by their enemies, land that had already been picked clean by tens of thousands of hungry Russian soldiers. The dirt roads of Poland were already creating huge logistical problems for Napoleon's army, and in this poor, depleted country, there would be few opportunities to live off the land. It didn't take long for the supply situation to deteriorate even further. Soon, the army was out of shoes, which was a big problem for a force that moved mostly on its feet. Unable to source replacements, the Grande Armée was forced to issue bolts of raw leather for the troops to make their own. Food became so scarce that Napoleon approached the Habsburg authorities in the neighboring province of Galicia with a proposition to buy grain for gold. As you can probably guess, he was refused. Austria and France may have been at peace, but to the Habsburgs, seeing soldiers of the Grande Armée suffer and die was more valuable than gold. On top of all that, the army was struck by dysentery, which killed hundreds and left the survivors weak and miserable. The soldiers had been right to dread this campaign. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. With his forces across the Vistula, Napoleon considered stopping here for the winter. However, according to reports from Murat's light cavalry, the two Russian armies were separated by a considerable distance. They were moving to unite, but in this rough terrain, that would take time. Bonaparte believed there was a chance to overtake the nearer of the two armies, under Bennigsen, and hit them before they could link up with Buxhuvden. Despite the army's mounting problems, the advance would continue. Unfortunately for the French, that would mean crossing the Vakra River, the far bank of which was occupied by the Russians, who were fully prepared to contest this position. As we've discussed in past episodes, crossing a body of water under enemy fire was one of the most difficult and dangerous maneuvers in Napoleonic warfare. This was especially true of the Vakra, which had no major bridges and was already full of dangerous ice flows. Napoleon himself scouted the ground and quickly discovered the maps at headquarters were quite wrong about the course of this river. However, he was able to identify a spot near the town of Charnovo, where he believed a crossing would be possible. The emperor chose Davout's Third Corps to make the assault, along with a secondary attack a short distance away by Marshal Augereau's Seventh Corps. They would make the crossing at night. It would be freezing cold, but the darkness would minimize Russian firepower. With the help of artillery support from the near bank, the French were able to make the crossing almost without incident. But they had to take the town of Charnovo itself to secure a bridgehead, and enemy resistance was ferocious. The Russians launched counterattacks with both infantry and cavalry. It was do or die for the French. If they didn't take this position, they would have no choice but to fall back over the river, harassed all the way by the enemy. In the freezing darkness, the fighting was confused and terrifying, often occurring at very close range. After hours of bitter combat, the Russians were finally forced out of Charnovo. They immediately launched a cavalry charge and counterattack, but were repulsed. It wasn't until four in the morning that the final Russian defensive positions were cleared and the French bridgehead safely established. Casualty estimates vary wildly, but both sides lost somewhere around a thousand men. Marshal Augereau's crossing had not been quite as hotly contested, but had been much sloppier. Colonel Savary, the commander of the 14th Regiment of the Line and brother of one of Napoleon's closest aides, was eager to be first on the far bank, and made the crossing on horseback ahead of his men in boats. As he emerged from the river, a Russian Cossack appeared out of nowhere and drove a lance into the colonel's chest, killing him instantly. It was almost a replay of a scene from the beginning of the last campaign, when a French light cavalryman had driven a saber into the chest of the young general and composer Prince Louis Ferdinand of Prussia. This was not a good omen for the French. Augereau's generals threw their men recklessly at the Russian positions on the far bank, in small, poorly coordinated attacks, doubtlessly leading to unnecessary casualties. They were lucky that the Russians were spread thin in this area, and were not able to offer more serious resistance. Marcelin Marbeau, who we've discussed in some of our bonus episodes on Patreon, was serving as an aide on Marshal Augereau's staff, and witnessed the fighting. He blamed the rashness of Augereau's generals for the bloodbath. Quote, 
I have always felt disgusted by this contempt of human life, which at times leads generals to sacrifice their men to their desire to seeing themselves mentioned in the dispatches. End quote. Once the French gained the upper hand, the battle went their way, and they actually inflicted more casualties on the retreating Russians than they had suffered themselves. Technically speaking, these battles along the Vakra had been a success, but this was not the Grande Armée's best performance. The next day was, of course, Christmas Eve, but the holiday only brought more misery for the men of the French army. It started raining, and we're not talking about a light drizzle. This was a real, serious downpour that would last about 24 hours. Before long, every road in central Poland had turned into a morass of thick, sucking mud. The logistics system of the Grande Armée had already been struggling. Now, the mission of supplying 80,000 men across rough terrain was completely impossible. The French spent Christmas on the march. If they hoped to catch Bennigsen before he could link up with Buxhoofden, there was no time to spare to celebrate the holiday. The mud was so bad that some units only made it about 7 miles, or 11 kilometers, in 24 hours. They were moving about as slow as a pre-revolutionary army. Bonaparte was well aware of the poor morale among his men, and actually had arranged Christmas gifts, a significant cash bonus, plus new clothing and equipment. It was a nice gesture, but it did little to improve the army's mood as they slogged through freezing mud hundreds of miles from home and family. Somewhere around a hundred men of the Grande Armée committed suicide on Christmas Day. Around this time, Napoleon took to calling the men grognards, meaning grumblers. This was quickly embraced by the soldiers and became part of the internal slang of the Grande Armée. Napoleon's soldiers were famous for ironic wit and black humor, so this new nickname fit perfectly. Unfortunately for the grumblers, their Christmas mud march had been in vain. Despite their best efforts, they would just miss Bennigsen. At least, they should have. General Bennigsen was under orders to fall back to join General Buxhoofden. But those orders came from the headquarters of Marshal Kamensky, who was aging, temperamental, and, to a certain extent, not really in control. Bennigsen had found good ground, near a town called Putusk. He knew the French were in dire straits, and so he decided to disobey his orders, turn his 50,000 men around, and fight. Napoleon had designated Putusk as the primary objective of Fifth Corps under his best friend, Marshal Lon. The two forces were now on a collision course. Lon and his men arrived outside Putusk late in the morning the day after Christmas. By around 11, the whole corps, roughly 18,000 men, had finally formed up outside the town. They had started the day before dawn, only about five miles or eight kilometers away, but the mud was so bad it had taken almost all morning to get the corps into position. Lon's men were faced with somewhere around 40,000 Russians, the bulk of Bennigsen's force. They were arranged along a ridge line just northwest of the town. This would have been a formidable position under any conditions, but the recent rains had made the slope of the ridge slick with mud. Any direct attack on Bennigsen's army would have to slog upwards through an ocean of sludge while maintaining formation. 
Not only was Lon's force much smaller, exhausted, and hungry, they didn't have any artillery. With the state of the Polish roads, anything heavy simply sank into the mud. If the French wanted to take this position, they would have to find a way to do it without artillery support. And the Russians did have cannon, placed along that muddy ridgeline. Without artillery of their own, there would be no way for the French to suppress or destroy the enemy guns. They would have to bear the full weight of the enemy artillery as they slogged up that hill. Still, the French would have no choice but to attack if they hoped to trap the Russians before they crossed the nearby Narev River. Bennigsen was daring the Grande Armée to fight in very unfavorable conditions. Despite the odds, Lon prepared his men to make an attack. There was a method to this madness. Other French corps were advancing along Bennigsen's flanks. If Lon and Fifth Corps could hold the Russians down in this position long enough, they might buy enough time for their comrades to get into the enemy rear, thus cutting off and hopefully destroying the entire army. And so, shortly before noon, Marshal Lon led his men forward. They brushed away the Cossacks in the valley, and began the painfully slow ascent up the heights. Among the assault troops was a 22-year-old lieutenant, Thomas Bougeot. Bougeot was the son of a poor peasant family, but one day, decades later, he would receive the coveted blue baton of a Marshal of France. He recorded his memories of the assault in his memoirs. Quote, With a handful of men, we attacked a great line of infantry, protected by several batteries, and supported by a large force of cavalry. Our impetuosity threw them into disorder. They fled on all sides, and their guns would have been in our possession if the deep mud had not prevented speedy movement. A man could hardly drag his legs out of it. At this moment, the cavalry charged our left, which had no time to form up because the men were stuck in the mud and could only move very slowly. Notwithstanding their terrible fire, the two battalions on the left were overthrown and driven upon the first, where I was. Fortunately, we had time to form a square, but we were afraid we would be thrown into disorder by our own comrades in their attempt to escape from death and we were compelled to kill a good many of them to save the rest, because they were between us and the cavalry. We waited until the mass was within twenty paces of us. Suddenly, a fearful discharge confounded and stopped the horsemen. They fell like hail. The rest were seized with panic, and a shameful flight deprived them of the small share of glory they owed only to the dreadful state of the ground. During our short reversal, the enemy's gunners had bravely returned to their pieces, and their infantry had rallied, so we had to encounter a much superior fire. We bore it well, and when we had fired all our cartridges, the officers collected any they could from the dead and gave them to the men. Hitherto I had been lucky, but a musket ball came and struck me just above the left knee. A soldier came and took me by the arm to lead me to the ambulance, but after a few paces, my conductor was killed by a bullet, so I was left alone in the mud, and to add to my misfortunes, some fresh squadrons of cavalry came by the rear of our square and passed just where I was. I had no recourse but to feign death. They were no more successful in this charge than in the first. A man picked me up and led me to a village, where my wound was dressed. To make the scene more tragic, the house where I was caught fire. I dragged myself as best I could to another quarter, and from there was carried to Warsaw. 
End quote. Amazingly, despite the horrible conditions and tenacious Russian resistance, the men of V Corps actually managed to gain a little ground on the heights and captured the town of Putusk itself. But the Russians were not beaten. They fought for every inch of ground and counterattacked wherever they could. As the battle raged, the weather got worse. Pouring rain and sleet soaked the combatants to the bone. Marshal Lon himself was wounded, as were several other French generals. After an agonizing struggle, the French attack lost momentum and then began to fall back. In their exhausted state, outnumbered, without artillery support, faced by relentless Russian counterattacks, it was all simply too much, even for the hardened veterans of the Grande Armée. By mid-afternoon, Lon and his men were in a terrible position. They had fallen back almost to their starting points. Casualties had been severe, and many of the survivors were near the limits of their endurance. There was still no sign of the artillery arriving anytime soon. In front of them was Bennigsen's entire army. Several Russian regiments had also suffered badly, but their force was much larger, and they still had fresh units to deploy. You can easily envision how the rest of the battle might play out. The Russians sweep down from the heights in a counterattack. With his weakened and much smaller force, Lon would have little hope of holding them off. The only choice would be a difficult fighting retreat, through the mud, with an exhausted and poorly supplied corps. Perhaps Lon and his men would soon be facing annihilation. But Bennigsen hesitated. Lon and his men probably couldn't believe their luck. They caught their breath and prepared their position as best they could, while their enemies dithered. Bennigsen had misread the situation. Visibility was poor, and Lon's men had done a good job of driving away the Russian light cavalry. Bennigsen actually had no idea how few French soldiers waited on the plain below, or how bad their condition was. Bennigsen's headquarters was operating under the assumption that they were faced by the bulk of the Grande Armée, led by Napoleon himself. They estimated around 60,000 men. Once again, Napoleon's reputation proved to be a huge asset. Bonaparte was well known for achieving the impossible and always being a step ahead of his enemies. When an opponent caught him in a mistake, they sometimes refused to believe it. And so, the battle entered a lull. Both sides waited for something to happen while they were lashed by freezing rain. Then, a new force arrived unexpectedly on the battlefield, an entire division of Marshal Davout's Third Corps. They had heard the sounds of battle in the distance and marched to assist. With the arrival of these fresh troops, the two forces were much more evenly matched. Bennigsen had a window in which he could have inflicted a severe defeat on the Grande Armée. That window was now closed. Despite the horrible condition of his men, the wounded Marshal Lon ordered another attack. But once again, the Russians held firm. By now, it was early evening. The sleet had turned to snow. In late September, in this part of the world, it was already almost pitch black. The men of both armies were too exhausted and miserable to continue the fight. The battle simply petered out. On Bennigsen's left flank, the French had been delayed by unexpected Russian resistance at the town of Goeman. On the right, they had gotten bogged down in the mud. Napoleon's bid to surround Bennigsen's army had failed. After nightfall, 
Bennigsen ordered his exhausted army to fall back, abandoning the position they had fought so hard to hold. When the sun rose on the morning of the 27th, and it became clear the Russians were gone, Napoleon tried to claim victory. Technically speaking, the Grande Armée had driven the enemy from the field, but it's hard to look at the Battle of Putusk as a success for France. Napoleon had failed to achieve his overall aim of trapping Bennigsen's army. The battle itself had been sloppy and unimaginative, with the French simply throwing their men against tough positions without artillery support. Estimates of the casualties vary wildly. Some sources claim the French lost as many as 7,000 men, but others say it was less than half that number. Russian casualties were probably somewhere between three and 5,000. This offensive into central Poland had exposed the limitations of the Grande Armée. In successful campaigns of the past, the French military had operated like a well-oiled machine. But in the tough conditions of the Polish winter, those finely tuned systems had begun to break down. In Egypt, the French had been defeated by the heat and sun. In Poland, the mud and cold had a similar effect. But let's not discount the Russians. They had experienced roughly the same conditions as the French. They too were hungry, cold, and poorly equipped. Many of their units had also experienced low morale. The French had won almost every battle in this phase of the war, but the Russians had acquitted themselves well, particularly the common soldiers. Just like the men of the French army, they had the toughness to keep fighting through brutal weather and horrible logistics problems. This was nothing like facing the Prussians two months earlier. The Russians were experienced and resilient. Most of their senior commanders in this campaign were mediocre at best, but the army as a whole had proved to be a worthy adversary. The events of the campaign had been closely observed by Colonel Gerhard von Scharnhorst, one of the most capable minds in the entire Prussian military. Despite the lack of any significant victories by the coalition, Scharnhorst had been very encouraged by what he had seen, writing, quote, The days of shame and disgrace seem to be at an end. end quote. This would be the end of the hapless Marshal Kamensky's career. His poor leadership over the preceding weeks finally convinced Emperor Alexander to accept his resignation. He died in 1809 having played no further role in the war. Once the Russians crossed safely over the Narev River, it was obvious to everyone that the French had no chance of catching them and forcing a major battle. The Grande Armée was exhausted, morale was low, and the logistics system had failed completely. Napoleon's headquarters estimated that roughly 40% of his forces were absent without leave, roving the countryside looking for food. With the army in this state, another contested river crossing was totally out of the question. Finally, Napoleon bowed to the inevitable and ordered his men to make winter quarters. The war would enter another lull, pending some solutions to the army's logistical nightmares. It had been a hellish campaign. The Grande Armée had been pushed near its limits, and there was still no sign of the war ending anytime soon. Still, the men must have been grateful for another respite, even if this too would prove far too brief. That's all for now. This is the last Age of Napoleon episode of 2022. 
We had a good year, so I want to thank those of you who have supported the show financially or helped spread the word. I couldn't do it without you. I wish all of you a happy and prosperous 2023. I'll be back to you in a few weeks with some more bonus content, so don't forget to sign up on Patreon if you want access to it. And as always, thanks for listening.